0: everything devours itself. Lust, hate, love. We burn and burn until there is only ash and then we eat what remains. Carry it inside of us like a secret until it grows into something else. Christy Demeester, Everything That's Underneath. Welcome to Books in the Freezer, a podcast focusing on the deliciously disturbing world of horror fiction. I'm one of your hosts, Stephanie.
1: And I'm your other host, Rachel. Today we are so excited to bring you all a bonus episode with a very special guest. I've described her writing as dark and delicious. In 2017, she released not one but two horror books and has quickly earned a place among our favorite authors, So let's begin our conversation with Christy DeMeester, author of Beneath and Everything That's Underneath on this episode of Books in the Freezer. So Christy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to
2: be here. I always love getting to come in and talk a little bit about the things that I love and talk a little bit about writing. So I'm very excited.
1: Oh, I'm glad to hear that. I was talking with Stephanie earlier, but we did an episode that was QA, and one of our listeners asked us who would be our dream podcast guest and your name automatically came up for me. So that's pretty surreal, actually to have you here.
2: Oh my goodness. Thank you. That makes my month. It's always so wonderful to hear things like that. So thank you. Thank you very much.
1: Oh, good. And I warned you a little bit ahead of time, but we did come up with a bunch of questions and we tried really hard to avoid asking you a thousand questions and keep you here all night so bear with us but before we do that we thought it would make sense to go over a little bit more about your two books just in case someone somehow is not familiar with your stories already so if you're game I just want to go over and talk about my favorite book of 2017 which I gushed about in our end of the year episode and that of course is beneath which was published by word horde and this story for anyone who doesn't remember from that episode is a novel about a reporter named Cora who is assigned to cover a story about an evangelical snake-handling church. At first, she is reluctant to go to the church because as a child she was sexually abused by a pastor and since then has turned away from organized religion, yet she begrudgingly accepts the assignment and begins the investigation into the secrets lurking in the community. The story is also told from the perspective of a young girl who is just about to undergo her first snake handling experience and a pastor struggling with his own personal desire. This is a book that I connected with so much because I remember reading it and thinking how is his author in my head?
2: Well, that makes me so happy to hear because it was a unique writing experience in that it felt very insular as I was writing it, and that it was so unique to ways that I grew up. And in my mind, you think to yourself, no one's going to connect to this, no one else is going to think that this is interesting. So it's always such a good thing to hear that somebody does feel connected to it because it felt so within my own head and so within my own world. So it's always nice to be able to know that someone, like you said, connected with it. So thank you thank you very much
1: oh that's so great and I think it's just really interesting because obviously I come from a really different background than you I love your accent honestly to me it's so cute oh (laughs) and I come from like this Canadian completely different background but it's funny how some of the threads in the story can just really hit home
2: Thank you for the comment on the accent. It's the funniest thing because I feel that I've worked very hard to prune the hillbilly and the backwoods out of my voice. But I know that it's still there, especially with certain words. And if I'm not careful, especially if I've had like, you know, four or five too many glasses of wine, it will automatically start to sneak in. And so, you know, I can't help it. Certain words like... Oil, you know, I'll say oil and vinegar, and I'm like, ah. (laughs) So yes, I do appreciate that, especially if you're coming from a a very different background, because, like I said, not everyone gets to deal with the Appalachian snake handling
1: community. Yeah, I don't think it's ever been very popular in Canada, so it's not exactly (laughs) that aspect, but just the underlying the themes dealing with like female sexuality and motherhood, and oh, there's so many layers to your story that even if I've never stepped inside a snake handling church, I connected with the story so much. Well, thank
2: you. Yes, those were big things that were important to me as I was writing them and were, again, mirroring a lot of the things that I was personally going through and a lot of the fears and struggles that I was dealing with when it comes to motherhood, either when you're dealing with someone who is your mother and then also being a mother. And so a lot of those things just naturally seeped their way into Beneath as I was writing that story. And I knew that I wanted to present motherhood and female sexuality in a way that was honest because I think so frequently we not only tend to tiptoe around female sexuality, and I think that that's gotten significantly better you know, in the past 20 years, but motherhood is something that people, I think, still want to play very safe and view motherhood as this very beautiful, transcendent experience, and that's not always the case. And so I wanted to be as honest as possible 'Cause I was telling the story and so it became important that those threads come together.
1: Oh, I definitely think that came through in the story. Oh, thank you. I should probably stop dominating the conversation. So Stephanie, <laughs> you're here too. Do you want to talk a little bit about her short story
0: collection? Because I know
1: we've both read that.
0: Yes, and I absolutely loved it. And that was everything that's underneath. So that was a collection of 18 short stories, and I couldn't think of a better way to describe it than how you described it at the beginning as like dark and delicious. That was absolutely the case. So it dealt with a lot of themes, a lot of relationships like motherhood, feminism, and of course, like you were talking about female sexuality. And when I was reading the stories, I thought they were very dreamlike and literary. Like when I was just a few sentences into the story, it's one of those feelings where I'm like, oh, this is where I am now. And you just totally went into the story. I saw a few times that it was classified as weird fiction, which was really interesting. So yes, I absolutely loved it.
2: Oh, well, thank you very much. And yes, a weird fiction is a label that is interesting. I feel like I kind of almost stumbled into it and didn't realize that that was necessarily what I was writing. You know, I don't shy away from horror as a label. I think a lot of people, they hear horror and they immediately have these stereotypes in their mind of what horror is supposed to be Mm -hmm. and they want to call their writing anything but that. But The Weird Label was not something that I had originally intended. But I think, like you said, the dreamlike and the quality and the ambiguity, that's started to shift, I think, the labeling a little bit more into the areas of the weird because of the ambiguity and because of things not being quite so clear, which I know a lot of people don't care for (laughs) when things are a little unexplained or just end. And I think that that's probably what makes it weird with a capital W.
0: But I love that. I love that ambiguity and just playing with all these elements and you do it so well. Thank you. I appreciate that. So I don't know how
1: you find your time, but on top of publishing two different books in 2017, We should also mention that you also publish numerous short stories and were included in an anthology that I loved last year called Tales from a Talking Board, which was edited by Ross E. Lockhart. And your short story, Yes, No Goodbye, is the first story in the collection. And one of my personal favorites in it, it's this beautiful story about two young women who, of course, decide to play with a Ouija board. I just always want to recommend that one to anyone looking for a piece of diverse horror, which you don't see often enough. But I actually don't know. For Stephanie, what was the first short story that you read by Demeester?
0: Well, the first one I listened to actually was on the Pseudopod podcast, and it was The Room in the Other House, which is episode 568, if anyone is interested. I... Loved that one. It's also been published in a lot of other publications and earned a coveted spot in volume nine of the best horror of the year, which is edited by Ellen Datlow. But I listened to it and I was like, I don't know what this is, but I love it. I need to find out who this is and read more of her stuff.
2: Oh, I have a soft spot for that story. That story was 100% inspired by a dream that I had And I could not shake it, no matter what I did. And I promise I won't actually spoil the story for anyone. But the dream itself, I was with my husband. We were driving along these kind of winding backcountry roads. And we passed an abandoned, dilapidated house. And I looked, because I always like to look into old houses just to see what's inside of them. And I looked inside, and there was a child standing in the house in front of a raging fire. And I told my husband to pull over. He did. And as soon as I ran into the house, because I assumed this child was unattended and he was, he fell into the fire and I went into full panic. And I was trying to snuff out the flames and I found like an old curtain and I threw it over him. But when I threw it over him, the curtain just hit the floor and he was gone. And I had this terrible feeling of this isn't right. Something's not right. And I woke up. And I just, oh, I couldn't shake that wrongness, that feeling of just something being wrong that whole day. I went to work and everything just felt tilted, just enough to be unsettling. And so that story came out of that dream. I wanted to create something that it was just enough to where it was grounded in reality, but... There was a sense of the weird that you couldn't get rid of. So I really had a good time writing that story.
0: Well, that's really interesting. I have terrible dreams.
2: (laughs) (laughs) A lot of people are like, where do you get your ideas? And I'm like, I have awful dreams. (laughs) Apparently.
0: Might as well put it to you. That's right. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So now we do have a few questions for you while you're here. So we want to know, how early on did you decide you wanted to write horror? And was that something that you always watched or read growing up like what's your history with the horror genre
2: so i fell in love with spooky things when i was very young and i remember being told to go to bed when i was a very little girl and sneaking and you know, coming to the steps or coming to, out into the living room behind my parents and, and watching television. And so this is when I would have been very young before we actually entered into the fundamentalist church that we were in when we had a television. And so my very first memory was watching Fright Night when I was probably four. And I fell in love with Chris Sarandon when he was in his vampire form. <laughs> from that I graduated my mom let me watch Beetlejuice and then I fell in love with Michael Keaton as Beetlejuice and I think that these were all the clear indicators of something is very wrong Or, you know, David Bowie and Labyrinth, I fell in love with the Goblin King. Oh, me too. <laughs> oh, gosh, didn't we all? Oh, my word. And so the first introductions were film. And uh, having this weird inclination and weird interest in these things, even though they were supposed to be very scary. You no, know, I was young enough. That I didn't truly understand. But after that, when I started to read, and I started to read when I was very young, and the very first thing I read that truly scared me was The Chronicles of Nardia. And I remember reading some of the battle scenes that were in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And again, I was around five, and I started having vivid nightmares of demons and creatures crawling out of the earth and chasing me down. I had recurring nightmares about vampires standing by my mailbox, and I knew that if I didn't like get into the house, they would come and get me. And so my mom took the book away from me because I was having these terrible dreams. But within days, I figured out where she'd put it and then I just went right back to reading. And so, even though I was having these nightmares, it was like I couldn't get enough of that adrenaline and that sense of excitement. And so, from there, I graduated to mysteries. And so, again, you know, I grew up in this very strict fundamentalist household. So, from the time I was five until the time I was 11, If we didn't have television and we didn't have movies. So I got all my horror fix through, mostly through reading. And so there was a series of Christian mystery children's books called the Mandy series that I just tore through. And there was close to like 30 or 40 of them. I couldn't get enough of them. They were in my school's teeny tiny little library. And then I graduated to Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys, and that is what kind of kicked me into looking for darker stuff or more adult stuff. So, of course, probably one of the biggest influences, and this is just, I think, anyone who's in their 30s now, R.L. Stein's goosebumps hit while I was in elementary school. Mm -hmm. and probably fourth and fifth grade, that was such a huge thing. And again, my mom didn't like the covers, and so I would have to borrow them from friends or (laughs) sneak around to read them. And it was funny because she let me read almost anything that I wanted to as I got a little bit older, but I think in that like third and fourth grade range, I was still a little too young. But after that, I just went right into the older teen horror books. So like Fear Street, Anything by Christopher Pike, The Vampire Diaries series back before they made the television show. And then I found Anne Rice and just ate up interview with the vampire series. Got in a lot of trouble at school because I was too young to be reading those books and I would bring them into school and I would read all the sexy scenes out loud <laughs> for all my friends and then my teachers would hear me and I'd get in trouble but then also around that time my parents divorced and my mom remarried someone who loved horror movies and Up until that point, I had had no exposure to horror movies. Not really, not since I'd been very young. And since new stepdad wanted me to like him, of course, he let me watch whatever I wanted to watch. So he was like, "Yeah, you can sit here and watch this with me." And again, I was 11 or 12, and we were watching, uh, you know, Halloween and Pumpkinhead and Chud and Nightmare on Elm Street and every slasher known to man. And I'm sitting there just eating it up. Then the other thing was Scream came out when I was a young teenager, and I was obsessed. I remember going and seeing it, and then having the DVD or no, was it the it was the VHS? Good grief! And (laughs) just watching it constantly. And so I've always been a fan, but I didn't try to start writing horror until I got much older. So into my mid twenties, I was an English education major. Everything was supposed to be literary. So for a really long time, my love for horror felt kind of dirty. I had a librarian who would not check books out to me because she said they were unladylike. Oh, Oh, man. You know, And because of that and because I got in trouble at school, I kind of learned to keep it hidden until I was, yeah, like 22 or 23. And then I had an idea that I couldn't get out of my head. And I'd never really tried to write a story before. And I sat down and poured out this awful... God awful story. And then from there, it was just, I I couldn't stop it. And yeah, the horror has always been there. But writing it took a while. And because I think I was so focused on other things. But after I was 23, 24, from then on, I was a lot more devoted to actually writing horror. So yeah, that's my long (laughs) explanation.
0: So you are talking about when you were writing that there was, for you, like a stark difference between like you need to be focusing on writing literary things and the people there saw horror as something different. But I definitely see very literary roots in your writing.
2: Thank you. I so appreciate that because that is something that I love. I love novels to not only be entertaining and compelling, but I also want them to be beautiful and have something more meaningful to say outside of just a good story well told. Certainly there's a place for that. I love a good, like, just rip through it at the beach kind of book, just as much as everyone else. But there's a difference to me if it feeds me in a different way. When I get a book that is not only entertaining, but it's also beautiful, and there's passages in it that are beautifully written. And that was something that I really wanted my own writing to have. And I wanted to emulate some of the idols and some of the literary idols that I had, even though I was
0: writing about darker things. Well, I think you're definitely successful in that. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So do you have a personal favorite horror subgenre? Or like when you're consuming horror, do you have like something you gravitate towards?
2: Oh, yes. Even though I have roots in blood and guts, I really prefer the quiet atmospheric horror. And I loved slashers growing up and when I was younger, but I got really weary of the formula of the slasher. And so I started looking for books and films that were more unsettling than based in just gross out. And so, I I mean, you'll hear that people call that literary horror, you'll hear people call that quiet horror. Sometimes you'll hear it called weird, although sometimes I feel that weird borders a bit too much into sci-fi for me. And certainly I know speculative fiction genre bends quite a bit. And I would even say now, fabulous literature is something that I'm enjoying a lot because it's like weird and literary together. And that gets me every time. Like I said, the beauty in the writing and the beauty in the prose will grab me faster than any kind of like fast paced
0: story. So do you have any favorites in the fabulous genre?
2: Oh my goodness. My absolute favorite right now is Helen Oyeyemi. I cannot get enough of her writing. And it's so strange and unusual and lovely, but at the same time, it's got this starkness to it where the sentences themselves can be very ornate and then they can just be very plain and simple. And there's something about just her ideas. It just blows me away. So I think I have a list of favorite authors down here somewhere, but she's right there at the top for me right now. Kelly Link is the same way for me. I've seen her on some fabulous lists. I know The Weird also tries to claim her. I think Fantasy also tries to claim her. But she's just doing her own thing. And Karen Russell.
0: Uh, I love Swamplandia.
2: (laughs) Yes, yes. Love Swamplandia. And so yes, in terms of, I think, fabulous writers, Amy Bender. Oh, yeah. Also just doing some beautiful work. So yeah, the ladies are killing it when it comes to the fabulous movement.
0: They really are. So with your reading, what would make you put a book in the freezer?
2: Ah, okay. So what gets under my skin and makes me have to sometimes put the book down and shiver a little bit and then pick it back up. Any scene where an author takes a very normal moment and casts it with just enough strangeness so you can envision not knowing how to respond to it in real life, that's the thing that would make me want to throw it in the freezer. So I'm thinking like that final scene in Charlotte Perkins Gilman's The Yellow Wallpaper where if you haven't read it, you don't know what I mean, but where she's creeping around the room. And oh gosh, if it's just enough where it's grounded enough in reality but strange enough to make you think, wow, something's really wrong here. Any Daphne du Maurier story that's darker in tone, uh, she has a story called The Doll. The final scene is just Oh, it just, it gets me. Joyce Carol Oates' The Corn Maiden, same thing, where it's grounded enough in a real moment to be scary, but then there's a weirdness in there too. So any combination of reality and non-reality combined to cast everything into doubt and fear, especially if there's an emotional grounding to it, if there's emotional resonance, if there's something that's at stake and there's something that's about to be lost that's irrecoverable and everything is just odd. Oh, I get freaked out. <laughs>
1: That is the best answer we've gotten for that question so far. Ah! (laughs) (laughs) I like that a lot. So we do have quite a few questions related to being a female horror author. It was one of our resolutions for the podcast for 2018 was for both of us to read more horror by women. One of our friends of the podcast, Sean, wanted us to ask, why do you think there are so few female horror authors? Or why do you think the horror genre is still so dominated by men? What would you say to that?
2: It's interesting because... I think there's a perception that there are more men writing horror than women that I don't think is true anymore. At least not from what I'm seeing. When I start to make lists or when I start to think of the horror that I have enjoyed lately or the horror that I read last year that I really enjoyed, I am getting more and more hard-pressed to come up with a male name. And so I don't think it's necessarily that there are fewer women. I do think that the stigma once upon a time was that, again, I go back to that awful term of unladylike, or it's not refined, it's not sophisticated, women shouldn't be thinking of things like this, you should be these delicate flowers that live in the house and take care of babies. But I think that mentality has shifted a lot over the past 30 years, and so there are a ton of women writing horror now. So I don't think it's a problem in numbers. I think it's a problem in awareness. Because I think that frequently, these women who are doing this incredible, incredible work, they're just not being spoken about as frequently as male counterparts. Now, that's not to say that there aren't talented male writers. There are. I'm very, very good friends with probably one of the greatest writers that I've seen is Michael Wehunt. Sweet God, that man can write. But the awareness and the talking, the conversations that are being had, don't always circle back to women. And I think that's just a force of habit for a lot of people. And so I think that there are lots of women, maybe just as many now, writing horror. It's just they're not getting the same kind of attention that male writers are getting. And so that's why I'm pushing people to read. I'm like, you know, read more widely, read more diversely. But don't just read them. Talk about it advertise it. If you enjoyed the book, go drop a review on Goodreads, say something on your social media pages, share it with friends that you know would be like-minded so that that way what seems to be limited, people are aware that it's not.
0: So along a similar line, friend of the podcast, Emily, or book happy on Instagram, wanted us to ask you, what are some of your favorite female horror authors?
2: Oh my goodness. Okay. I got (laughs) such a good list. Oh my (laughs) God. Okay. So some of these might not qualify as exactly horror in quotation marks but there's certainly horrific elements in their stories and I cannot get enough of these specific writers so I know I talked about Helen Oyeyemi her book Whitest for Witching there's a scene in that book that I had to stop reading and I have not been genuinely that creeped out over anything in a very long time but there was a certain scene in that book involving a mannequin oh Jesus I, I can't even talk about it now because I'm sitting by myself in the, the almost dark, so <laughs> I'm not gonna talk about it <laughs> anymore so Helen Oyemi I mentioned Kelly Link Damian Angelica Walters is doing some wonderful stuff she had her second collection just come out Joyce Carol Oates oh my word to me not just prolific in her output but she can spin a story like so other few people can. Livia Llewellyn is doing dark fiction in a way that is so unique and just aggressive. And I appreciate it so much. She takes on everything and anything that would make you squirm and does it in a way that is so beautiful that you can't look away. Oh gosh, she's so good. Nadia Bulkin just had a collection come out. Phenomenal, phenomenal writer called She Said Destroy from Word Horde. Helen Marshall. Oh gosh, y'all, I'm sorry. This is a huge list. Gemma Files has a novel called Experimental Film that just blew my mind. Sarah Langan's, oh gosh, The Missing and The Keeper are two of these just catonic, creepy, stories about towns and evil oh so good obviously Daphne du Maurier I for some reason had never read Rebecca until about a month ago and I need to go back and reread it immediately because I loved it so much Shirley Jackson is like you know godmother to us all definitely yeah hello Philanary O'Connor is one for me. I know a lot of people would not say she's horror, but I would encourage them to go read A Good Man is Hard to Find and come back and tell me again that she doesn't write scary things because that story is terrifying. Gwendolyn Keist, her collection came out, I believe, last year. And then she has a novella out now called Pretty Little Marys where she takes on all of these folktale Marys and tells stories about them. So like Mary Mary, Quite Contrary, Bloody Mary, Emily Carroll. She's actually a writer and illustrator, and she did a graphic novel called Through the Woods. Oh, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. Sarah Pinborough, Gillian Flynn, Angela Carter, Chessia Burke, Alison Littlewood, Anya Alborn, Kathy Koja, Nayla Hopkinson has a book called Skinfolk. Oh my God, it's breathtaking. I could go on for days. Yeah. This is a condensed list for me, and when we're like, oh, there's not many women writing, and I'm going, yes, there are. Yes, there are. There's tons. We
1: have to talk about them. That's a fantastic list. So I'm sure all our listeners are like frantically writing these down.
0: I'll try to keep track of all these and put them all on the show notes. So awesome. we'll have a, a condensed list on there and like books that you mentioned and links to where people can get them. So perfect, perfect. we'll have that in the blog.
1: So bring this back to you personally. Would you say you've experienced barriers as a woman writing in the genre?
0: Uh,
2: unfortunately, yes. And a lot of that is not necessarily related to working with editors or working with publishers. I haven't necessarily ever had explicit issues in that realm, but it sometimes bleeds more into the personal. I'll get messages frequently from random men about how you shouldn't be writing this demonic, disturbing stuff. I've been told I'm too pretty to have these kinds of thoughts or that it's not ladylike to do that. I have been told that I'll never be as good as my male counterparts because um, females are too emotional, we're too soft, and so you can't develop your writing in a way that's the same. I've been told to be quiet and keep it private when I call out disparity in publishing. That actually happened not that long ago. I uh, was told, you know, hey, you really should have done this privately. And I was just like, okay, well, that's just another way of telling me to shut up and so it's frustrating. I don't know if this is my own interpretation but I see the trajectory of my own career compared to a male counterpart and you see opportunities that maybe he's received that I haven't and it does make you wonder is that related strictly to being you know a male in an industry where a lot of other males you know see that as like a boys club Are you wondering, you know is it because I'm not good enough? And so there are just kind of like weird little things here and there where it's frustrating.
1: It's such a shame that you have to deal with that. Have you ever thought about writing under a pen name? I know some female authors purposely hide their gender for that reason.
2: I have never given that thought, and here is why I like attention too much. and i want everyone to pet me and say good job you you know because people have asked that too have you considered running a pen or a pen name just because of the subject matter that you write you know embarrassing your family or or you're embarrassed and i'm like i'm not embarrassed i want all the attention so bring it on but I also know a lot of women do that and so I don't know what the success would look like if it wasn't obvious that I was a woman but yeah that's that's not something I've ever considered
1: yeah good on you for yeah not hiding it because I think it's something you should be proud of is writing and yeah exactly I think be proud of your stories yeah
0: and definitely as a female horror reader I love reading a book that I connect with you know immediately just because it's written by a woman I love that
2: definitely and that was something that i always appreciated too even when i was young of picking up a book that was written for women by a woman and i think that's why i gravitated so much toward like i know i mentioned that mandy series that was written by a woman for girls and who had this heroine who she didn't care that her dress got torn and she didn't care what she looked like in front of polite society she was like there's an injustice here that i need to see out and so Yeah, there was something always in that that just clicked with me.
1: Well, this actually leads really nicely into my next question, which you've already sort of answered. But one of my favorite aspects of your novel Beneath was the themes of female sexuality and motherhood, which you talked about. And I just find that so often male authors portray women in their horror stories in really uncomfortable ways. And so I really liked how you handled it. So I was curious, do you think you bring a little bit of a different perspective to horror writing as a female?
2: I try to portray, or I want to portray the reality of female sexuality and motherhood, uh, that it's not something that can be categorized or placed into this neat box, that there are desires and hatreds and fears and disgust and so many conflicting feelings that get wrapped up into one person and that, that one person can have a multitude of those emotions or a range of those emotions and move through them very quickly. So I think too frequently, female characters are only allowed to check one of those boxes. And that's just not honest. We can be damaged by sex just as easily as we use it as a weapon or use it as comfort or use it as love or connection. Motherhood can be toxic and predatory as much as it can bring joy and contentment. And I think for too long, there's been this softness around these kinds of things but they're way more complicated than that. And so it's like, you know, we're not either angels or whores and Mm -hmm. we're not either loving mothers or addicts. There's layers and those layers are worth exploring. And that was something that I know in my own writing, I shied away from for a long time of not being honest about the characters that I was developing because I was ashamed of myself. And the minute that a beta reader pointed it out, she had told me, you know, that doesn't feel honest. For this character and I knew immediately what she was saying because I was going well I'm not being honest with myself of how I actually would feel in that situation or how I would actually respond internally externally to that situation and so at that moment I was like okay well I need to be honest with myself when I'm writing and sometimes that's not pretty and sometimes it's really uncomfortable and I had to kind of force myself out of my comfort zone particularly with Beneath because of all of the stuff that happens in that so Yeah, that's something that I struggled with and had to come to terms with.
1: Your work really reminds me of Gillian Flynn's writing, both in terms of style and content, particularly because of how you both handle or address the darker side of female existence. And I feel like she's another author who, like you mentioned, doesn't shy away from writing those uncomfortable topics. Has she been an inspiration at all for your work?
2: Thank you, first of all. I adore her work. And she's visceral. She's raw. She doesn't apologize for writing real emotions, even when they're nasty and unappealing and hard to look at. And so I really appreciate and want to replicate that kind of honesty in my own writing, because even though it's like holding up the mirror to the ugly parts that we don't want to see, I think that there's appreciation in that and just interest of like you feel a little less ashamed as you're reading it because I remember reading her books and going okay I've had these thoughts and they're not nice and I don't really want to share them with other people and it's nice to see even if it is a fictional character that that thought is there with another person and so it just gives you this moment of feeling a little more humanized and a little more understood and so yeah I adore her work so much.
0: And that's funny. I actually absolutely agree. I never wanted to admit it, but there was passages in Gone Girl that I highlighted and I was like, Amy, you are right. I agree with you. And I was like, wait, maybe she's a psycho. Do I agree with her?
2: (laughs) Right. But I think that that's something too of that We all have that little psycho inside of us where we wouldn't necessarily act on anything or we wouldn't necessarily say anything. But there are these moments in our lives where we're looking at something just unflinchingly and in your mind, your initial gut reaction is probably the most honest one you're going to get. And then the thing you actually do or the thing you actually say is the thing that society tells you you're supposed to do. Now, certainly, I mean, like that's, you know, it, ego, super ego Mm -hmm. stuff. But yeah, I just, I appreciate that she lets it go there.
0: We did have another question from Emily. She wanted to know, is your mom scary? Because the mother-daughter relationships and everything that's underneath are fascinating, but most of them are kind (laughs) of (laughs) terrifying.
2: I love this question so much. Okay. So, yes, if you classify scary as emotionally manipulative and narcissistic and being a pathological liar who uses people around her exclusively for her own benefit, then yes, absolutely scary. So... I was going through, and this is particularly having to do with the collection, a lot of those stories were written during a time period where I was experiencing a lot of fear related to being a new mother and a lot of fear of turning into my mother. And so as I started writing those stories or as I was going through it, that fear just naturally leaked into my own writing where I was trying to work out like therapeutically what does it mean if you had a mother who was predatory and manipulative and you know used you what does it mean then when you become a mom and you're terrified that you're going to turn into her how do you deal with it and so writing those stories where you had obviously there's supernatural elements in it but bad moms and and trying to you know trying to work through it so those were therapy sessions is what those
0: were well we loved them well
2: thank you (laughs) yeah
0: so know that something good came out of them (laughs) I also have to add, uh, Rachel and I have actually very different tastes when it comes to horror. And you're a favorite with both of us. So Rachel enjoys a lot of the gruesome and unflinching scenes and female perspective in beneath. And I adored the poetic prose and dark ambiguity of the stories and everything that's underneath. Would you say the style in your novels is different from the way you write short stories?
2: I try to create things that are disquieting, but still beautiful because those are the kinds of things I like to read. So you can have this horrifying scene that can be gruesome, but it's described in a way that has a kind of loveliness that makes it like pleasant to read too. Mm -hmm. Almost like dreamlike, like you're entering into this fugue state because that's the feeling that I like to be in when I read. And so I hope to replicate that. So that's the kind of style I hope to capture. But when it comes to the difference between the short stories and the novels, I feel like I can get away with being a little bit more experimental and purple-prose-ish in my short stories than I can in novels. It's just because plot becomes a lot more important in novels, and so I have to force myself to keep things a little bit tighter as I'm writing novels and not let myself get carried away into that dreamlike state. So I'm not somebody who believes that story should be sacrificed for pretty words, but I also know people reading a novel have a certain expectation of story and that things need to be propelled forward and you don't need to get caught up too much in description or in things that don't seem to make sense but sound nice. So in a short story, I feel like I can get away with a little bit more.
1: I like that you have that balance between narrative drive and literary quality because I admit I'm not typically the most literary reader but like stephanie said your stories completely connect with me so i think you've struck a really good balance for those more plot-driven readers like me that you can still bring us along and i love your writing while well, we said oh i'm not a literary reader but i can say that i read christie demister's books which have a literary oh. quality so thank you for making me well, feel a little bit smarter as a reader <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, thank you because that makes me feel good because I feel like I worry. I worry so much because I read through it like every stupid author does, even though I know we shouldn't. You go and you read the reviews and there's the comments of like, none of these made sense. They just ended. I don't know, understand what's going on. And I'm sitting there like, I know, but I'm diet plot. I'm sorry. I'm plot light. And so I do worry about like treading that line and I don't want it to be too much on the one side where it's so ambiguous. You have no idea what happened because I remember reading those books in college and getting so frustrated of like, why did I have to just sit here and read this book that my professor said is so wonderful and nothing happened. So I do try to tread that line.
1: No, I think you do it just fine. And I love ambiguity and stories. So that works out really well for me. Oh, but like I said, it's a kind of story that, you know, still gives me chills and just pulls me into it. So whatever you're doing, just keep doing it. Don't change it up is all I want to say. <laughs> Wonderful.
0: And those Goodreads reviews are obnoxious because some of the people I feel like they've also never read a short story in their life.
1: Yeah, I try to take
2: all of it with a grain of salt, because I see reviews where it's like, oh, short stories aren't really my cup of tea. So I gave this one star and I'm like, well, then why are you getting on here and putting a star on here anyway, if you don't even like short stories? Like, yeah, come on now.
0: (laughs) So your work has also been described as Southern Gothic. And being from the South, how much does location and setting play into your stories? Do you have literary inspirations from the Gothic or Southern Gothic genre?
2: Oh, God, i gotta get my <laughs> cast iron skillet out and make some <laughs> cornbread. Here we go. I grew up here. So even though I'm from Atlanta, it's so funny to me because Atlanta is a city of transplants. If you go downtown, nobody grew up here. Everybody's like, well, where are you from? You must have moved here. And I'm like, no, I've been here for a long time. And I don't plan to leave because I, I love Atlanta. This is a beautiful place to live. So I have tried very hard to write stories not set in the South. And they just never seem to work. I'm like, but I don't understand the land. And so everything always tends to gravitate back here because I do feel like the land itself, especially here lately, has become such a part of what I'm writing. Like the actual physical place, I don't understand it outside of walking outside my back door and what it is that I see and what it is that I've grown up with and what I experience. So it's just, I grew up here. It's in my blood. There's like a fecundity in the land and in the earth and in the air that just seeps into everything, gives everything this decay and sadness and strangeness that I just, I love. I I know I talked about her. Flannery O'Connor is a huge influence and has been since I was in high school. But also writers, these are not horror writers at all, but they're very strictly Southern writers. Lee Smith and Rick Bragg, who does a bunch of nonfiction, but his essays and his editorials, he's just got this flavor that it's sad and it's funny and it's Oh, I just, I, I love him. And then also Ron Rash, who wrote a book. It's a retelling of, I think, Hamlet called Serena. Oh, so good. So yeah, they're not necessarily horror-related, but they're Southern through and through, and there's a quality to their prose that I just, I adore and I count as influence. But there's something about being outside in the summer at nighttime when it's humid and there's no air movement and everything feels just like it's dropping down on you. There is a natural, like, excitement and kind of almost a little bit of fear just in that. And that weather and that feeling, I just, it goes into the stories. I can't get away from it.
0: Oh, that energy is definitely there. I mean, I might have been ruined because I heard your first story read to me by a narrator with a Southern accent. But when I read your (laughs) stories, I hear it in my head in a Southern accent.
2: And you know, it's so funny, that pseudopod story. When I went to listen to it, I was surprised by the Southern accent. And then I was like, why are you surprised? (laughs) It's Southern. There was something where I just went, oh, ooh, accent. And then I went, girl, it's supposed to be like that. (laughs) That cracks me up.
0: (laughs) So also your stories and everything that's underneath, we talked about have that dreamlike and poetic quality to them. Do you have any kind of a background in poetry?
2: I do not. I have zero background in poetry. It's so funny because I like poetry prose. I like that quality and Mm -hmm. I like that style but I was never a poetry writer. I enjoyed reading it all throughout high school and college, but it was never, other than writing like crappy love poems to boys who didn't like me back, you know, when I was young, I never really got into writing poetry on my own, but I appreciated the abstract quality of the images and the metaphor building Mm -hmm. that happened in poetry. And so I think that that enjoyment just kind of naturally came over when I actually started writing on my own. But yeah, no background in poetry for me. <laughs> Not really.
0: <laughs> well, I definitely see the prose and the good metaphors. I was going to ask you like, oh, you weren't one of those teenagers that had an angsty journal collection for like your feelings.
2: Oh, no, I know. I still did. Oh, God. I, I'd love to dig some of those up. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I think we all did. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we've talked about it before. You had some stories published in weird horror collections. How did you feel about being classified that way? And I know you've mentioned in other interviews that you didn't grow up reading Lovecraft, which I know is a big influence in the weird horror genre for like cosmic. And Rachel and I don't really have a background in Lovecraft either, but we really enjoy your stuff.
2: Well, thank you. I mean, I'm fine with it if that's what someone wants to call it. I certainly see how it fits because Mm -hmm. like I love the ambiguity I love the unknown and those are huge components in weird fiction and since I play with it a lot in my own writing I think it just kind of slid into that genre even though I didn't necessarily have an awareness that it would but yeah I definitely did not have that background in the classic weird that a lot of people had I didn't read Lovecraft until gosh three years ago and even then I read it and I was like eh (laughs) <laughs> this is all right I guess this is fine it wasn't anything that I was super crazy about and then you know I tried my hand at like Clark Ashton Smith and then again I was like eh, not really my thing Arthur Machen I prefer Robert Aikman I can get behind some Robert Aikman now that's some good stuff so yeah it wasn't necessarily anything that I intended to do but if that's what somebody wants to call it hey sure why yeah. not <laughs> if it works it works
0: so what is the usual reaction you get when people find out that you're a horror author
2: that's usually a very polite smile (laughs) and an, oh, oh, I can't do the scary stuff. Yeah. Then I'm like, oh, okay. That's generally the reaction. And then the other reaction I'll get is like, oh, yeah, I love Stephen King. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Uh Uh-huh, we've all read Stephen King. I got you. (laughs) Or if it's a real fan, then we can actually have a conversation. But mm, 80% of the time, It's a very tight, like very minimal teeth smile where they don't want to show you that like they have no clue what you're talking about (laughs) and like, oh yeah, I don't, I don't like scary stuff. And I'm like, okay, well then we just won't talk about that.
1: Yep. So we have to ask, do you have any upcoming stories in the works?
2: I do. So the May issue of Black Static started mailing out today. I have a story in there called Pyrolidaea and it's about mummified moths. And I also will have stories forthcoming this year, although I'm not sure exactly when, in Apex, also in Shimmer. And then I am going to have another story with Pseudopod this year. So that's exciting. Yes, 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 yes. They do such a great job over there. And then i will also going to be in a handful of anthologies. So there's one called Ashes and Entropy. Oh, I forgot about this one. I'm so excited about this one. An anthology called Welcome to Miskatonic University. That's by Broken Eye Books. And that one is all like Lovecraft in college. And so I wrote a Lovecraft in a sorority story.
0: That sounds so oh my fun. Oh, gosh. I need to read this right yes. now.
2: <laughs> Told 100% through emails. Yes. Emails back and forth between like sorority president and sorority sisters. And they're so bitchy. I love them so much. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> There's a couple other anthologies I actually don't think I'm allowed to talk about yet. But yeah, okay. so Black Static, Apex, Pseudopod, Shimmer. Yeah.
1: It's going to be another busy year for you by the sounds of it. I am yeah. so excited
0: for that sorority story. Oh, my gosh.
2: I had so much fun with that one. So that should be coming a little bit later this year. And I'm knocking on every bit of wood I have over here. I have a second novel that I am trying 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 to find an agent for sitting with some agents now and then a third novel after that is still needs edits but I'm kind of not editing it yet until I find out about agent stuff because I'm like "Uh, I don't want to make a bunch of changes and then turn around and maybe have to make changes again and then like 36,000 into a fourth novel wow so hoping that those come soon
1: that's so exciting (laughs) Stephanie, we need a Books in the Freezer imprint right now so we can start publishing these ourselves. Ah! Yeah, let me just Google what we need to do that. All right, right get right. on that.
0: <laughs> Our friend Laura wanted to ask, do you have any pets?
2: I have three dogs that make my life insane. <laughs> my husband has a dog that he got while he was in college. His name is Hank the Dog, and he has no manners. And then we have a Chihuahua mix and... Who is just comprised of ninety percent hatred and ten percent tremor. And then we have a hound mix that was kind of an a whoops baby. She was wandering around the neighborhood, and she had these big blue eyes, and I just was like, oh, we have to take her in, and the vet told us, oh, she's a terrier mix. She won't get larger than 12 pounds, and, you know, she's 40 pounds and no longer has the blue eyes, so she tricked us, but we love them.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That sounds awesome. Yeah. (laughs) And then, what is the scariest book you've ever read?
2: Okay. Okay. Let's see. I have a couple, and I think I might have already talked about them. Uh-oh, sorry. The Corn Maiden by Joyce Carol Oates, which is actually a collection of short stories. But that's title story, Nightmares for Days. White is for Witchy and I already talked about. You People, go buy that book. It's so good. And then Sarah Langen's The Keeper and the Missing. Terrifying.
0: Okay, I will leave links to all of these for everyone to look them up. All right, now we have a few quick questions for you. Just lightning round, just whatever comes up. And the first one, you're from the South, so I have a feeling which way you're going to lean, but you might surprise me. So Coke or Pepsi? Coke. Pepsi is
2: horse urine. (laughs) Okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Or as we call them, (laughs) (laughs) Coca-Cola's.
1: I'm learning so much about the Southern United States. (laughs)
0: Oh, yeah. I had Southern roommates. They would not touch anything that was not Coke.
2: No. uh -uh. You go into a restaurant, people are like, is Pepsi okay? And I'm like, you're having to ask me that question. You know the answer.
0: My husband is the opposite. If we go to a restaurant, he asks if they have Coke or Pepsi. And if they say Coke, he's like, I'll Sprite then. Oh, no. (laughs) The Craft or Heather's?
2: Oh, no. Oh, God, don't. The Craft. I love Heather's, but the Craft was like coming of age moment for me. And I really, really loved the bad one. Nancy. I wanted to be her.
0: Oh, yeah. Zombies or vampires?
2: Vampires, because I thought they were sexy since I was three.
0: They are. They're a sexy breed.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) We celebrate them on Valentine's Day for the podcast. We did.
2: Oh, yes. So good.
0: Dunkin' or Starbucks?
2: Dunkin', because they have a flavor that I wish I could have injected into my veins, and they only get it seasonally. It's butter pecan. Oh, my God. It's so delicious. Butter pecan with cream only. Yes. Give it to me.
1: Hot coffee or iced coffee?
2: Hot. Hot. I don't care how hot it is outside. It has to be hot. Really? Oh yeah, I love it. It's so weird. Everyone's like, it's 102 out, and I'm like, I know. I don't care.
0: Oh, I'm the same way. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh my god. Ebooks or audiobooks?
2: Ebooks, because audiobooks are too slow for me. The narrators, I'm like, can you please speed this up? And so when they actually have, will have the function that you can speed it up to two times, that's how I'll listen to it, and that's how I listen to my podcasts. It's got to sound like chipmunks, or I want nothing to do with it. Takes too long.
0: That's how I am too. They talk way too slow.
1: Yes, I'm like, I could have gotten
2: through this book in three hours and it's gonna take you 16.
1: You and Stephanie are so kindred spirits. <laughs> I'm in the slow audiobook listening group.
2: I used to have a very long commute. And so I was in a car for three hours a day. And so that was my lifesaver was podcasts and audiobooks. And I just got to a point where I was like, I can't do this anymore. It's driving me insane. And so I just slowly trained myself to listen to it at the fastest speed.
0: That's the way you got to do it. Last one, Jason or Freddie?
2: How Freddie? Because he's funny.
0: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) There's something almost more sinister about that.
2: Oh, absolutely. Jason is like dumb killing people freddie is getting genuine enjoyment out of it he is just like gleeful in everything that he does jason just lurks i don't care about
1: that and finally we normally end our episodes by recommending some creepy media like a podcast video game or tv show that we're loving so we want to ask you what is one of your current chilling obsessions
2: well, I was so into the podcast, The Black Tapes, yes. which is by the yes. same people who do like Tannis and Rabbits. And since that's been gone, my heart has been broken. I was really not happy with the way they ended it, but I mean, like, I get it. Okay, fine. And so I've been kind of on the lookout for another fiction-related horror podcast that's not just stories being read. But right now, unfortunately, I don't have a ton of time, or I don't do a lot of TV and I don't do a lot of movies, unfortunately. I did start watching Wild Wild Country. and. Oh, yeah. Have really been enjoying that because the cult aspect just pairs so freakishly with my childhood that it fascinates me. So I've been into that lately.
0: Oh, yeah, that's a good one. I'm only like three episodes in, but it's same. It's
2: creepy. (laughs) Yes, I think I hit like the end of the second episodes and before I fell asleep. So I need to get back into that.
0: Definitely. And I'm also sad about the black tapes ending because Rabbits just quite isn't filling the same void for me.
2: It's yeah, it's good in its own way. it's It's not the same. It's not the same.
0: Understandable. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this bonus episode and answering all our questions. Before we let you go, we want to ask you one more, though. Where can people find you online?
2: Absolutely. You can find me on my website. That's www.ChristyDemeester.com. And I'll spell it because it's weird. It's K R I S T I d-e-m-e-e-s-t-e-r.com. I have links to all my books, all my stories, information about things that are forthcoming, social media. The best place to find me is going to be on Twitter and that's K-M Demeester. I am usually pretty good about staying on top of that. My Facebook friend requests I ignore because I have had some weirdness happen in the past so it's best to go through Twitter.
1: And for any listeners who haven't yet checked out your work, we really encourage them to do so. We're going to have information about the books we talked about in the show notes, including information about both your debut novel Beneath and your short story collection, everything that's underneath. But thank you so much again for joining us. This has been so much fun. I can't remember the last time we giggled this much on the podcast.
2: Yay, I'm so glad. Thank you so much. I had such a great time and I really appreciate you guys having me.
0: Books in the Freezer is a bi-weekly podcast. We post episodes every other Tuesday. You can find us on Twitter at Books Freezer Pod or on Instagram at Books in the Freezer. You can send us an email at booksinthefreezer at gmail.com. Show notes for this episode and all previous episodes will be at booksinthefreezer.wordpress.com. A special thank you to our Patreon supporters. This wouldn't happen without you. I am Stephanie. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at lady underscore Ganya. That's L-A-D-Y underscore G-A-G-N-O-N or on YouTube at that's what she read
1: and I'm Rachel you can find me on Twitter at shades underscore orange or on YouTube and Instagram
0: at the shades of orange so join us next time for books in the freezer